This is a podcast about Vancouver, our community, our culture, our quirks, and all the colors that combine to make our city of glass. My name's Mo Amir, and I'll be your host. This is Van Color. Sherlock Knives is it, so I'll hurry up on it. This is Van Color. The field in the city of Vancouver's municipal election is crowded. Yes, there are some candidates, most notably Chief Ian Campbell of Vision Vancouver, who have already bowed out of the election, but the plethora of choices remains. We are seeing independent candidates, and I promise that I have at least two more scheduled to interview in the coming weeks, but we're also seeing new upstart parties, often comprised of regular Vancouver residents, who have decided to take matters into their own hands when it comes to the governance of the city of Vancouver. On today's episode, I interview two candidates from one of these new parties, and I think their inclusion in my series of political interviews will help to highlight just how diverse the choices are before you cast your ballot on October 20th. Today on This is Van Color, I'm joined by two political candidates in Vancouver's civic election. Two at the same time, but they are from the same party. They represent pro-Vancouver, which aims to bring balanced, practical government that meets the needs of everyone. Their mayoral candidate is a born and raised Vancouverite. He is a financial planner whose previous employment includes being an emergency first responder trainer and a technical scuba diver trainer. Why he would go into politics and not go scuba diving instead is beyond me, but hey, the man has his priorities. He also currently mentors young entrepreneurs and chairs the parent advisory committee of his children's school. The pro-Vancouver City Council candidate here today has worked with a few little companies you may have heard of. Change.org, Electronic Arts, Amazon, Microsoft, and most recently as an R&D manager at a Vancouver-based tech company, that helps governments and Fortune 500 companies use technology for compliance with policies and prevention of fraud and corruption. He's been on the Standing Committee for Economy and Environment for the BCNDP, a volunteer for the Vancouver Greens, and a member of the Nonpartisan Association NPA. Also, our friends at Vancouver is Awesome called his the best beard to ever grace Vancouver politics. They are representing pro-Vancouver. They are internet darlings. Vancouver mayoral candidate David Chen and Vancouver City Council candidate Raza Mirza. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing great, thank you. Thank you for having us. My pleasure, thanks for being here. You you guys and your party is quite interesting to me because pro-Vancouver, as David, you mentioned in a previous interview, I believe with Business in Vancouver, came out of an internet group, mm-hmm. uh, the widely publicized Vancouver is Falling Facebook group. So the first thing that pops into my mind is like, how do you go from a group that shares information and opinions about housing affordability in this city to an actual political party? Well, that's a great question. I think that the first thing we have to understand is that while social media, some people may think is not real because you never see the other people, (laughs) but they do actually come together. And so you do find out that these are real people with real concerns. Mm -hmm. And when they now come up to you and go, you know, you're one of the most educated people on this subject, Mm -hmm. you speak eloquently, you have the force of will to actually do the right thing for the people. Mm -hmm. You need to run. At first, when you hear that, you're sort of like, it's a lot. It's a lot to have on your plate. But then when you keep hearing it, and then you start thinking about it, and you think what's at stake, Mm -hmm. that's when the wheels start turning. And we, we look at this, and we go, this is a new world. Yeah. You know, this election is one where we have the strangest thing happening. 
the incumbent has stepped down. Yeah. Parties are fracturing and new entities are coming out. Mm-hmm. So this is actually the perfect storm to go out there and battle for the people. Sure. And that's literally what happened. We we looked at this and we said, okay, we've got advocates. We've got people that have been fighting for affordability and for several years. Th- yeah. This is not a new thing for us. And they're sort of independents, but they're not united. Mm. And so it becomes very difficult to actually go out there and to fight for the people and to have a chance in an election when it favors people that are grouped together into parties. Right. So that's where Pro Vancouver came in. We are literally an elector organization. We are not a party. Okay. We create the infrastructure to unite independents. Mm-hmm. We're the only ones with a constitution that actually says you can be part of another party and you can be part of ours. So wait, so could someone be part of um, like a rival party? Yes, absolutely. Okay. We actually, interestingly enough, yeah. have supporters on our team that are part of other parties. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And so um, when you made this jump and decided that you were going to run... How long did it take for that community online, and I guess people that you were now meeting offline, how long did it take them to convince you to, to do this? Actually, it took a few months. Um, okay. But really, what <laughs> That's I good think, to know, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You I mean, it out. I, yeah, well, you know, this is not a decision you can just jump into right, yeah. and not think about. But I think what really changed my mind was the by-election. Okay. When we saw Hector Bremner get in, mm-hmm. and it was one of those, are you kidding me? Like, I've been to public hearings, and I'm concerned about what I see. Hmm. And so that's really where it became, we need to do this. Yeah, We need to step up. You know, if we actually care about our city, we care about the future, we need to step up, provide our ideas, provide the direction, provide the leadership that the city has been lacking for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, now, you do have a lot of supporters affiliated with HALT. Housing Action for Local Mm -hmm. Taxpayers. It's an activist group that's been very critical of things like Airbnb, empty homes, uh, foreign ownership of homes, particularly when used as investments or commodification. Mm -hmm. What is the relationship between this action group HALT and Pro Vancouver? Uh, There is none. Uh, The only association right now is that I'm a former spokesperson for HALT Mm -hmm. and I am running with Pro Vancouver. But I've already stepped aside, t- taking a break from Holt, so to make sure there is no influence that I have on the group. Sure. And a lot of the ideas that I have been advocating for and are now uh, part of our platform are very similar to what people have been saying. These are the same people who support uh, you know, Holt. Mm-hmm. So it's, it was a, just a natural uh, tendency to support a party which uh, is talking about things that they care about and is bringing ideas to the table that these people uh, you know, want, want to see be implemented. Okay, interesting. Uh, now I, I want to know, and I've asked all the candidates who have sat down mm-hmm. with me this question, so I'm, I'm throwing it out to both of you, and you sort of answered it, but why are you running? Okay, well, um, I'll take a stab at this. So really, as a person who's been born and raised here, Mm-hmm. I've watched the city go from a big city with a small town feel mm-hmm. to a city of glass and steel where people are are not welcome. Mm-hmm. If you don't have the money with this high-end culture, you're sort of excluded. Right. And we're watching families move away. As a PAC chair, I watched the attendance within the school drop. Mm-hmm. And yes, we know we lo- lost some of the students to Crosstown, but I also knew families moved away from here. They've mm-hmm. moved to Squamish. They've moved to Kelowna. They've moved to Vernon. Why? If this is such a great place, that shouldn't be happening. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was a kid, 
it was rare to lose friends. I mean, I, I did because I grew up on the poor side of Point Grey, and I, all my friends were army kids. Wait, is there a poor, poor side of Point Grey? I know Grey? That, that sounds really <laughs> funny, but again, you, you have to know the history. Sure, so, yeah, I don't, and so, I'll admit to that. Yeah. So, you know, if you go back like 40, 50 years, yeah. the eastern edge of Point Grey was actually all working class. Okay, so, oh, okay. So they were actually poor, Sure. right? I mean, my friends were actually army camp kids. And I remember mm. back then, we used to collect pop bottles. We'd go to the local Mac store to trade it in for the deposit so we could buy a slush cat, play a couple of video games. That was us. Okay. We didn't go there with, like, money spilling out of our pockets going, like, you know, load me up. No, that wasn't us. Sure, sure. But then what changed over time was there was a lot of interest from unregulated global capital that mm. suddenly went there. And if you doubt that, you have to look at the current prices. And, you know, a lot of people think that Point Grey is rich. It's not. But past Blanca, if you go west and if you go north, those properties are in excess of $10 million a piece. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them were bought with cash. Well, okay. I, don't, I don't know about you, but, like, I don't have any friends that got that kind of coin <laughs> kicking around, right? Unfortunately not. No. Exactly. So what I'm trying to get at is that when I, you know, looked at this and I was like, this is really sad. Mm -hmm. You know, we've got kids in our community. They're nine-year-olds and they're freaking out that they can't afford to live here in the future. They're taking on their parents' problems. Yeah. And so, you know, you want to talk about personal reasons. Well, it's very personal to me to see kids that are not being kids. Mm -hmm. You need to do those silly things like us, you know, getting into trouble, taking the pop bottles there, like having a good time with friends, not worrying about adult problems. Yeah. And that's changing. So it does concern me. And that's why I looked at this and I said, that's a future my kids have too, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm concerned about that. I don't want my kids to work. I don't want anybody's kids to work. I want us to be a strong community. I want us to focus on the good things in life, mm -hmm. the things that make Vancouver something that you're proud to be part of. Sure. And it's not happening. Yeah. So that's really why I ran. Fair enough. Raza? Uh, for me, things changed uh, about two years ago when my daughter was born. I was working for Amazon at the time. And that's when it started to really hit me how unaffordable Vancouver has become for young families. You know, and I wouldn't will not pretend I was you know earning fairly well uh, with with a big uh, you know company you know doing very well with my job, mm -hmm. but it was impossible. And the decision came down to: should I save money for the future of my kids, mm -hmm. or should I move further away and commute two hours every day and not spend that time with my family? Right. And at that time, uh, you know, I was given another opportunity to work at a company called change.org. Mm -hmm. We introduced it already. And you know, there was this uh, idea that I can use my skill to make the world a better place, give people a voice. Hmm. And I took it. So I'm one of the few people running who actually knows what it feels like leaving the city that you left behind. Yeah. And I did that. I moved to Victoria, worked hard, you know, lived in a, uh, a basement um, you know, when I was making a six-figure salary, which is very rare. Uh, <laughs> so not everybody is those uh, millennial who wants to, you know, everything in life. You know, some of us work really, really hard. And uh, I did, you know, start uh, you know, a new from, from scratch again. But I always felt Vancouver because a lot of my friends were still here. Mm -hmm. My community was here. And I wanted to come back. And then at that time when I came back, um, I knew that I cannot have my family moving every few years. Sure. And we need to change that. And I got involved with a lot of advocacy work. Mm -hmm. I started, uh, you know, uh, me getting more involved with HALT, 
I started getting more involved with uh, some of the other grassroots organization, uh, trying to find uh, fight big money in in, in politics, mm-hmm. uh, trying to you know get a, a corruption inquiry into some of the things that have been going uh, you know at BC government, and one thing led to another. You know, I met a lot of great people, and eventually, you know, this they asked me, "You have the passion, you clearly care. Um, you know, would you consider running?" Mm. And uh, and I just initially thought, no, they're just joking. But after uh, being involved, advising different uh, you know parties and uh, helping them with the platform, I realized early on, you know, none of these uh, parties re- represent the the best interest of the people. You know, they you know they sound very well. You know, they can talk in sound bites, but knowing what I know, would I vote for them or? Uh, can I trust them to fix the problems that when people of Vancouver have? Mm-hmm. And the answer was no. And that's when I decided that uh, for the future of my city, and more importantly, for the future of my own kids, sure. you know, I need to step up. Yeah, and you bring an interesting point because um, there is a big difference between being an activist or even being involved politically with different parties and actually running for office. And one thing that I'm trying to maintain in in when I talk about other candidates is I might disagree with them or have problems with their candidacy or whatever, but we should commend anyone who runs for office. It's a big deal. You're under a lot of scrutiny. I'm sure there's a lot of stress. Uh, and that is quite a big jump, even if you are, you know, politically involved or politically active. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um, Reza, I, I, I want to ask you a little bit about this, let's call it political experimentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were very recently uh, a member of the NPA. Uh, are you still an active member? Have you left that yeah. party? Or? Um, my membership expired a few months ago. Okay. I have not tried to renew it. Um, <laughs> in NPA's constitution, I believe it says that you can only be part of uh, one organization. Okay. Uh, at this point, I'm running with uh, Pro Vancouver, so sure. I am part of it. So. I'm not even sure if they'll allow me or consider me as a member. Why did you Why did you join them in the first place? Um, after uh, municipal, ele- uh, after uh, provincial elections, um, I knew that the next big thing where um, where policy uh, you know, decisions are going to be made are are municipal, and especially when after the by election, I mm-hmm. got concerned. So I did go out and talk to a lot of people. You know, I met a lot of the candidates who are currently running or, or uh, showed intentions of running in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I sat down with them, had coffees, talked about what they're trying to do, where their, what their positions are. And um, one of them, um, you know, who was a good friend of mine, I respect him very well. He was on the board at, of NPA at the time. And the conversation went like this. I would not, you know, think that you are an NPA kind of person. Why are you sitting on their board? And then he assured me that there are changes and there is a will that NPA wants to be more progressive. They want to be um, better representation of the people of Vancouver. Hmm. And he asked me, you know what, you know, we're sitting here, uh, you know, you're having a coffee, it costs you five bucks, and an NPA membership costs you 10 bucks. So, you know, if you really care, come join me mm-hmm. and uh, you see for yourself. And yeah. that was my first thing. And I said, okay, you know, Fair enough. I can I can spare extra ten bucks and I'll join NPA. Funny enough, that person later left and uh, <laughs> joined Greens. 
got a nomination uh, to run for uh, school board, but he is not running. You know, that's I think you just gave, gave away who that person is. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's, he's a great guy. Uh, he's, you know, I'm proud to call him a friend. Yeah. I, I guess, um, like, would you say that the NPA isn't what you thought it could have been? Because there's another independent candidate, and this one I'm not going to give hints mm -hmm. to who it is, but when talking to them, they were also interested in, in running for them. And um, they said that there was an initial, initially a lot of excitement that you would have a lot of people starting to dictate what the MPA represented, and then it felt like maybe that wasn't the case. I think the number one thing which represent if a party is for the people or is it just a, um, you know, per, uh, representing a special group or, or a group of people mm -hmm. is uh, what is their process to find their candidates. Right. And, uh, you know, I cannot exactly tell you how much it was, but from what I've heard and, uh, you know, people who told me that you should consider running for NPA, it was a lot of money. And an average person <laughs> uh, cannot raise that kind of money. Mm -hmm. And when you are going to raise that kind of money, you have to go to people, you know, who would want something in return. Mm -hmm. And that was something that really turned me off from NPA. Sure. Um, I know some of the people who are running. You know, I've met them over the years and, you know, I, you know we became, um, you know, good friends. Mm -hmm. And I, I think some of them are good people. But at the end of the day, um, are they representing me? Are they representing somebody who lives in maybe, um, you know, east east of, uh, east side of Vancouver mm -hmm. or somebody close to PNE? Right. Are they representing the whole of Vancouver? And my answer is no. And that was something uh, that really... Uh, made me rethink, uh, you know, where I stand. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And I and, and this last point that I'm just going to make on this is, um, you know, there's a lot of hearsay about what happened, but the truth speaks for itself. There were a, one public exodus from that party, and then there was a few more sort of after that as well. So uh, it did sound like a lot of people maybe had a lot of enthusiasm to start there. I'm only speculating at this point, but it sounds like you're saying the same thing and. And then they had to go their separate ways and pursue whatever uh, candidacies or, or political action that, that they wanted for themselves, right? Um, I want to jump into your platform. That's why we're here. Housing affordability, the number one issue in this city that gets people really riled up. We've already talked about it a little bit. But before we get into the policies, I want to hear from you. And again, this is a question that I've asked uh, every candidate that I've had on the, sh on the show when we talk about housing affordability. I want to know, what are the tools that the city of Vancouver has at its disposal to affect the housing and rental markets in Vancouver? So there's three things. It's got, obviously, taxation. Mm -hmm. Number two is zoning. But there's a third power that is in the charter that has never been used. And so the city actually has the ability to take over the stewardship of a property if it's been wrongfully used. And so okay. if you actually have an empty home that's boarded up, Mm -hmm. That is actually wrongful use. Right. You could, according to law, step in, take over the property, bring it back to code, get someone to live inside there, and charge the owner for all the costs. Has it ever been done before? No. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. It's like you have the power, but you didn't use it. Yeah. Right? And this is the thing. Our population is, is screaming for this. They want enforcement. They want something to be done. And the city has it within their charter rights to do this, and mm -hmm. they're not using it. Wow. Yeah. So, and when you say zoning, are you including permitting in that yes. category? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, a lot of the permitting is going to be affected by what zone you create. Sure. Right? <coughs> so, 
at the end of the day, we've looked at a very important power that has now been transferred from the province, mm -hmm. which is to create rental-only zoning. Okay. And I don't think people appreciate how important that actually is. From a financial perspective, we know from a study done by Metro Vancouver, the highest amount of speculation on properties has been done around transit corridors. So if we were to rental only zone those areas, we take away the signal that tells people where to speculate. Mm. And like the rest of the market, which looks at momentum, when you take that away, suddenly it gets confused. Yeah. It says, well, where do I go? Right? And that's what takes a lot of the air out of the system that prevents it from accelerating because people think this is a no-brainer. I'm going to make money if I do this. Sure. Right? But then what it encourages is for purpose-built rentals, for non-market housing, like social housing, to be able to actually compete against market housing. When you have a zone that is not really attractive to market condos, mm. suddenly it decreases the cost and it helps the performer to create that affordable housing people are dying for. Okay. So so let's get into it. What Can you give me a summary of your housing affordability solutions? Um, let, I'll actually start with a question, um, you know, and everybody who's listening, it does not matter if you already own a home or you just moved out. Just think about it. When you moved out of your parents' home, what was the first housing that you lived in? And I'm talking to a lot of people, and, you know, there are people who are in their 70s, people who are young. Every single time, I'm yet to meet a person who says, we bought a condo, sure. and that's where we moved in. Yeah answer always is we moved into a rental home mm. or we, we, we rented. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the policies of uh, all three levels of government over the last uh, you know three, almost four decades, it has been geared towards home ownership. Right. And what, you know, what that did was we're just creating one type of supply. And in this case, uh, especially for Vancouver under uh, Vision government, it has been condos. And if you look at housing as a letter, Condos are at the top, hmm. or near the top, you know. Some uh, and people start at the, you know, at the beginning, which is mostly rental housing. Evidence tells that. Even CMHC, um, na, uh, you know, says that seventy-five percent of the new households that are being formed in Vancouver are renters. Yeah. Yet we do not build housing for those people. Hmm. So if there is one thing that the city can do, and they can do that today. Yeah. That is to stop building condos and start building rental housing. Sure. And we have seen it work. You know, be, uh, places like Seattle, uh, places like Portland, they, they they built a lot of rental buildings. You know, part of it is the the city dictates um, the kind of policies and, and 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 bylaws, which makes it really hard to build condos and really really easy to build apartment buildings. And even with the booming economy. You know, so a very good tech sector, something that, uh, you know, Vancouver would envy to have a very, you know, equivalent to, their hand rentals are now going down. Hmm. Because you think about this, when you build rental-only buildings, you address three of the main concerns that we have. They cannot sit empty because empty rental buildings do not make anybody money. Sure. Um, because you cannot individually buy and sell units you know, you cannot do flipping in them, mm -hmm. so there is less speculation. Mm -hmm. uh, the third one is, you know, I am yet to find a single rent renter who has. I have a lot of money, so I'm going to go in buy a, buy four units, keep them empty, and then try to 
you know, rent them out a year later for higher rent. That right. does not work. So the three big issues that we are facing in terms of our condo supply, you, you know, by building rentals, you immediately take care of those. Mm -hmm. And you are now building the entry-level housing. I'm not saying that they're, they're kind of like crappy housing, but realistically, where people start and that has been the biggest reason. There are other issues as well, yeah. but within municipal government, if you can pursue one policy, that is the one only policy uh, that will that have to be changed. And that's why we're saying that I've been for closely following platform of other uh, you know, candidates. They're doing, they're saying a lot of things, you know, some of them are, oh, we will go and get elected, then we'll work with the people who got elected, then come up with the plan, ask provincial government or federal government, people of Vancouver cannot wait. Mm -hmm. you know? And I'm proud to say you know, that pro-Vancouver is the only party which has a plan which we can start executing on day one. Okay. Yeah. So so the, your housing platform, and I, I actually I want to be very clear here, uh, we are recording on September 14th. This episode comes out September 19th. Um, your housing platform is not fully released yet, right? Uh, yeah, we were actually... Uh, funny enough, because um, you know we were a group of people who came together, we needed to make sure we are on the same page. Okay. So we created our housing platform and a lot of other things before we even launch. Okay. So it, you know, it existed, and it has been on our website for a long, long time. Okay. Uh, you know, because we are uh, proud to represent people. So some of the early people who started engaging with us, they came us and brought better ideas. Mm. You know, they shared their concerns. And we have, uh, you know, made sure we have incorporated that in our platform now, and we are going to, uh, to, uh, if you like that word, re-release our platform because gotcha. apparently everybody thinks we have we have no platform right now. But uh, you know, hopefully next week, okay. and that will have more of the details um, that of what what we are going to do and how how we are going to do it. Is the focus then of your housing platform focused on rentals then? Because it, it, the answer you just gave sounded like you was very rental focused. I think the focus is on the the type of housing that that where people start. Okay. You know, uh, where young families start, mm -hmm. and for most, uh, it is rental. It is non market housing. Mm -hmm. You know, these it mean it will include co ops. It will uh, include leasehold. Uh, you know, you know properties as well. But the big thing where we can immediately uh, start executing, which is the simplest one, is uh, is rental. Sure. And if the city, you know, city can focus on building non-market housing, and you know, to make sure, that, you know, our teachers, our nurses, our, um, you know, police officers, firefighters, paramedics, we have housing for that and for them, and in complement, we can have uh, developers who are in, who are who want to build purpose-built rentals, uh, you know, bring their part of the supply in the market. Now, all of a sudden we are building the right kind of supply. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people are saying, oh, this is election is about people who are anti-supply and uh, pro-supply. That's not the case. Yeah. And I'm going to be very clear, uh, you know, and I promise you that. This election is about two things. There are people who say, give the keys to the city hall, to the developer, let them do whatever they want, and eventually they will create enough supply, no matter what type of supply, which will bring down the prices and we will become affordable. And the other group of people who say, hey, wait on a minute, hey, hold on a minute. We need to look at this problem from both sides, from demand 
and supply. Mm -hmm. so from demand side, you need stronger enforcement of empty homes tax. You need to uh, look at illegal Airbnbs. You look to look at land speculation. You need to look at flipping. Mm -hmm. You know, and on the supply side, you need to by function or by law, you need to build a kind of supply that these things cannot be done on. Sure. And I gave you an example early of how rental-only buildings protect against that. And that's the difference. So if somebody is telling you oh, it's you know, supply versus um, you know, only demand-side measures, mm -hmm. that's not the case. I haven't yet to see any party who's saying, we do not want to build more housing. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and we've talked about this on the show quite a bit, that there is middle ground and there's nuance. And if you have all these available tools, why not exercise all of them in some capacity uh, and, and have them coordinate with each other? Um, so in anticipation of the re-release of your uh, housing platform, there are two ideas that I want to talk about that, that are somewhat related. And you've brought them up just now as well. The first is this idea of market and non-market housing and the ratio that you plan to implement. Uh, I believe you've advocated for a one-to-one -one ratio of market versus non-market housing. Now, is this for new developments in terms of what's going to be built, or do you want Vancouver to ultimately have that ratio in a certain amount of time like Patrick Condon had advocated for before he unfortunately had to drop out of the race? Great question. I think that realistically you have to look at it as a two-part solution so we know that like 57 percent of vancouverites are renters mm -hmm. so we're very low on the rental stock we need to up that so when you look at that it's a bit silly to think that we can make the whole of vancouver that overnight mm -hmm. of course yeah. but if we start saying okay the new development if it's a one-to-one -one or for what people understand a 50 percent 50 percent so 50 percent market 50 percent rental then eventually that ratio will get to the point where it corrects itself right right but i mean the the ratio between market and non-market yes not Yes. Not rental. Right. Well, right? again, when we're saying non-market, um, we're talking about rentals at the end of the oh, day. Oh, that's what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right? So if you look at it, when it's non-market, it's not affected by any of the market forces. This is something where it's purpose-built. It's got you know covenants. It's got housing agreements that control the rental cost. Okay. Um, we're talking social housing. Social housing also does the same thing where these rates are specified by the government. We've got the welfare rate, Hills rate, and affordable rates that come out. And then we've got things like co-ops, land trusts, okay. all these things that we can impose a covenant on that will control the cost so that there is equity, there's value to do that. Because there are still some people and there, there are people out there that say, I don't want just rental only. Mm -hmm. I want an option to maybe buy, right? Right. But if you release the market forces, then the problem is, and we've seen this in Whistler, right? So this is sort of an argument towards the, the Whistler housing you know, authority where They've stepped in and they said, okay, we have to control this because the first person who buys it, they buy it under controlled circumstances, but then they sell it and mm -hmm. then everything goes nuts after that. Yeah. Right? So this is where, again, we have to think about that equation. So when we're talking the one-to-one, -one, it makes sense on the new developments, okay. but it doesn't mean, and I've, I've been asked this question before, it doesn't mean it all has to be in the same building. So you can right. have a building that goes up. It doesn't have to be 50-50. But on an accounting basis, we have to look at saying, okay, we've got this rental building here. Now we can build this new one. But if we don't have the rental, then we can't build a new one. Mm -hmm. So now this puts a pressure on the developers to say, okay, we have to do both. Sure. So, Raza, you brought up a point that you are not an anti-development party. You do want to have new supply in, the, in, the, in, uh, in Vancouver. So I guess when we look at this ratio – 
I'm wondering about the overall numbers of new developments that you want to see under a pro-Vancouver government. Uh, because it's easy to say 50-50, but if there's zero new developments, then it's still zero, right? So so what kind of numbers are we going to look at in terms of new developments being constructed? So I've already talked about this at UBC Solder School. So we got a couple of problems. One is that we have to look at the building um, you know, workers. There mm -hmm. is a capacity limit. And so Breton, who's on our team, who is a builder, he's already told us we're already at capacity. There's no extra workers. Yeah, and that's probably true. There is a labor shortage. Here, exactly. Sure. Yeah. So when we look at that, we have to look at what are we going to build and whether or not we can access enough workers to do that. So I've seen people promise you know, the stars on this. Mm -hmm. But let's be realistic. So the city of Vancouver currently has a 2,000 unit a year target rate of production of new you know, uh, affordable housing. I think that's doable, but it's also low. Mm -hmm. I think that we're not going to be able to catch up. So when I looked at it, and I've asked these questions, interestingly, at the temporary modular housing uh, open houses. Okay. And he said, let's think outside the box. What we have to do is we have to create the numbers of housing now as fast as possible, and we have to keep it affordable until we can get the regular builds up to date. Okay. So I looked at this, and I said, well, this makes a lot of sense that we could take property like Little Mountain, just stuff it full of temporary modular housing that's not necessarily for marginalized people, mm -hmm. but just for middle class that can't afford it. Mm -hmm. I've asked the question, can you combine the units? Can you make like a thousand square feet of it? They're like, absolutely. What's a lifespan? It's 60 years. Can you get elevators in it? Absolutely. What's the maximum height you would, you know, be looking at? And they said, well, you know, five to six is doable, but we recommend four to five. Okay. So now we have a plan, right? When we look at the 600 units of temporary modular housing that are planned right now yeah. at a $60 million cost, you cannot do that with a permanent build. You cannot build a permanent build that fast. They can put a temporary modular housing uh, structure together in three months, and they tell me, I don't know, I'm not the expert, but they tell me five construction guys. That's all they need. Really? Right? Yeah. So when you look at that, you're like, oh, this is very doable. So I think that when we looked at this, having about 5,000 units a year is a doable thing. I, you know, obviously would love to shoot for more, but it's also one of those things, kind of like the Scotty thing, under-promise what you can do, and if you do better, great. Sure. So when you're saying 5,000 units a year, is that non-market or that's total? So in that situation, that would actually be the non-market. We have to bring that number up, Okay. right? And that's what's going to put a lot of pressure on the market rentals to also be competitive, okay. right? And so we, we are looking at this as a easier solution. It's a solution that's affordable by the city. It's a solution that's affordable even with some of the grants from the province. Mm -hmm. We do have some ideas on raising capital through private sources that aren't using bonds because I'll tell you in my you know, field, nobody's interested in bonds anymore. It's old news. It's, it, it's not liquid. It's not attractive. It's nothing, right? So we have new ideas where if we use sort of that crown corporation concept mm -hmm. and make these builds like a corporation sell off shares, not more than 49%, so the city never loses control, sure. right? But then it's market-based. Right. The people can sell it at will. They're going to be guaranteed an income stream in the future, which is based on the rents coming in. Mm -hmm. And especially if this is built from temporary modular housing, this is cheap. Yeah. You know, mutual fund companies out there, they're in the billions of dollars. And they mm -hmm. always have to have about 5% of the content is safe investments. Right. So imagine buying this, where it's collateralized against the project. It makes sense. Okay. Right. Um, now, when we are talking about non-market housing and, and different projects, um, I want to ask you, are you supportive of projects like Horgan's Alley, the uh, temporarily, Temporary Modular Housing Project, and uh, the East First and Clark Supportive Housing Project? Good question. Two different styles of projects. 
problematics on one of them. So when we look at TMH, it makes sense. Like right now, what's being put up near Hogan's Alley is really city land that's not being used. It doesn't have any immediate development plans until those viaducts come down. Um, so it makes sense to do something with that. TMH makes all the sense in the world. When you're talking about first, so you are supportive. Oh, of that totally, project. absolutely, okay, cool. right, and and also supportive just from the fact that if we want to solve the op- opioid crisis and the homelessness, mm-hmm. we need to support our bottom. Absolutely, right. Yeah. I mean, it's been said before. It's very cliched. The chain is only as strong as its weakest link, and if we don't take care of that, we become a weak society. Of course. Okay. When we look at First and Clark, it's a bit problematic. I've been asked this question before, and I have to firmly say I'm undecided, okay. because. We are seeing a trend, and I detected this when I went to a BC Affordable Housing Conference last year, mm-hmm. that we're blending sort of social housing concepts with market housing. And what they're doing is they're getting the developer to foot the bill to give this social housing or affordable housing, but the, the city gets it sort of free. Right, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of trades with the CACs being reduced or the development cost le- levies being reduced, parking being removed, um, height uh, exemptions to increase the profitability project, et cetera, et cetera. So the problem is when I went there, I asked two questions, and they couldn't answer it. I said, what's the size of the unit and what is the rent? When you're trying to virtue wash a project saying, oh, it's a detox fleet, yeah, I get it. We need that. I have no doubts about that. But when you blend it with this rental housing and you're saying, well, we need that too, but you can't answer the question, what is the size? We don't want shoe boxes. Yeah. And what is the rent? Because the rent has to be reflective of what the average rents are in that territory. Sure. If you come in with a much higher rent, ask yourself, do you think the average landlord's going to go, well, you know, I'll keep my rent low. <laughs> they're going to look at it and go, dude, we can raise this thing. Yeah. Right? That's, they're charging that. Why are we charging so low? Yeah. You will kill the market if you do that. So yeah. this is why I need that information. And if you don't provide it, I'm not going to say whether or not I'm for this. Sure. So Hogan's Alley, TMH, yes. Uh, East, First, and Clark, you need more information. Exactly. Okay, fair enough. Uh, one thing that does come up in this show uh, a lot when we talk to politicians, we talk about housing affordability, is this idea of a community amenity contribution. Um and I realized that we actually hadn't properly defined that. So, so Raza, I know you've written on this subject. Uh, could you just explain to me what this is and also add why it's so problematic in your opinion? So uh, community amenity contribution, or as they are commonly known as CACs, uh, this happens when uh, you know a developer or a person comes to the city and says, uh, I'm going to build something which does not conform to the current zoning. Mm-hmm. So it requires a zoning change. Sure. And in most cases, that means they are going to build more than what is allowed. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, you know, if you take an example of a house, and all of a sudden you ask that I'm going to build a tower, you know, the cost of the land is immediately going to go up. Of course. Yeah. So the city says, "Hang on a minute, uh, you know, we, you know, because by this decision we are going to add a lot of value for you, so we need to capture some of that." Mm-hmm. And at the same time, they will they say, because uh, with this added height and more units, you are going to put more people than we currently plan for. So we need to build some uh, amenities around it. So they ask for money, mm-hmm. uh, from, for some money from the from the, the whoever is bringing up the project, and that's how CACs work. Uh, the problem is, uh, you know, they're twofold. If you look at the definition, 
one is the, you know, the developer or especially large developers they can pay that uh, money in in kind which means you know i have a cup of coffee in front of me i you know i can say i will give you this cup of coffee in you know and this is co- it costs you 10 bucks mm-hmm. we never know you know how much it actually costs you know so the in kind part of it is something that even cra flags as problematic and we do that a lot so sorry, sorry uh, and i fully admit to being mm-hmm. very basic here mm-hmm. but uh, can you just explain that to me maybe without using a coffee example mm-hmm. like using mm-hmm. a yeah. an example that would actually mm-hmm. have happened or yeah. or even a hypothetical um so you know, a developer comes in yeah. and they say that you know we need to build a tower there yeah and the city goes and says because you're adding extra density we may need a daycare right gotcha okay. so and uh, for us the developer says okay um you know what does it cost you to build a daycare mm-hmm. and the city says you know we thinking maybe 25 million dollars mm-hmm. and uh, the developer say okay i can build it for you you know so instead of build you know giving a city the cash they are doing in kind donations right. but the problem okay. is uh you know what was the process to determine it would cost uh you know 25 million right you know because you know i'm sitting next to you and i tell you uh you know i need to get a uh podcast recorded and you tell me it's going to cost me you know uh, 100 bucks and then at that time you know if you were part of the interview I'll I'll give it that you know for free right. does that thing who decided you know how much it was uh, it it was worth right so that is often used to pad uh you know the contribution that a developer is making in these public hearings where they say oh yeah by the way if we do approve it this is the benefit we are getting and this is how what the value of that benefit is mm-hmm. but if you go and say oh well hang on hang on a minute we need cash that just that's a completely different story because mm-hmm. using that cash you can go in open market and you can get bids to build those amenities right. yourself instead of a developer building them and the second part of that when you know about this being problematic is a lot of these negotiations we do not even know how they are done mm. you know uh you know they are done behind closed doors uh you know the larger developers seem to get a lot better deals in terms of cacs and a smaller developer you know they go in and they're just just sitting there and they're getting angry at the city for not doing um you know anything for them uh which 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 creates these further problems uh, so in the city so there's no standard protocol and at the same time there's mm-hmm. no transparency in yeah. terms of what's happening mm-hmm. for some of the projects the city has tried to bring those in okay. uh but for the most part at least for the last 10 years uh or whenever these uh, these these policies were bring brought in mm-hmm. we did not have that so again professing to being mm-hmm. basic here so I'm hoping you can give me mm-hmm. a basic example don't CACs work in favor of the developer as well. And no, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I'm just pointing out the fact that if you're making a daycare next to a development or if you're making a transit stop or or whatever, they add value to that development that's next to it, mm-hmm. right? It actually works uh, you know, if in favor of developer in more than one way. Okay. So, um, you know, uh, some of the people who are more uh, you know, business inclined when you're looking at a project you're looking at the total cost of the project mm-hmm. so you know if somebody uh, comes in with a business venture and they tell they tell me it's going to cost me $100,000 first thing i ask is you know after 2 years what is going to be my rate of return you know if the person says oh you will make uh, 25% mm-hmm. that means uh, i need to sell that at 125 you know $1000 or whatever yeah. that is um but if in the, you know 
there is an extra value that was added, say, you know, in this case, CACs, they say, you know, it's uh, going to be 100 and, uh, you know, 50 million because city is now asking for 50 million extra. Right. When we're doing the same calculation on same, uh, you know, 25%, that means now that project has to sell for far more than uh, it was originally supposed to sell. Mm -hmm. And the developer is now going to say, you know what, that 50,000 now is a cost and I need to make a profit on that as well because I'm borrowing money you know, from somebody right. to finance that part. And he's not going to say, oh, because it's uh, money that the city is asking for, you can, you know, we're not <laughs> going to charge you any interest. We're not going to charge you any profit on that. Yeah. So eventually, in some cases, the developers walk away with more profit than than they would if there were no CACs. Hmm. And, the, you know, I understand the city needs money to raise, uh, you know, to build some of the infrastructure. <coughs> And that's what, you know, we've talked about it that I wrote. I wrote it in business in Vancouver about this. I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, you wrote, yeah. You wrote about um, uh, or you, you advocated for the city of Vancouver to, to do away with community amenity mm -hmm. contributions and to implement a land value tax. Mm -hmm. um, can you explain that idea if it is a pillar mm -hmm. of the pro-Vancouver um, mm -hmm. platform? Uh, that is, uh, you know, uh, when we are deciding our platform with pro-Vancouver, one thing we made sure was we are only going to put ideas in there which we can implement on day one. Okay. Uh, so a land value trust, uh, land value tax is one of those where we may have to go back to the province, mm -hmm. ask for new powers, which means we can advocate for it. We cannot implement that. Is, and is that in your platform that you'll advocate for a land mm -hmm. value tax, or you're just kind of leaving it off oh. because your platform is only going to be things that you can implement? Yeah. Um, well, we'll have to wait for next week for <laughs> to see the you know full platform. Uh, but on on my own, uh, you know, I can tell you where I stand on this. Uh, this is that uh, you know we need to move away from these uh, CACs and move to land value tax. Okay. And th there are two reasons for that. Uh, land value tax. Uh, what it does is instead of charging the developer upfront, mm -hmm. you're now dividing the cost of that over the years. So it's amortized uh, over a long period of time. So nobody has to cough up a lot of money upfront. Mm -hmm. That immediately can reduce the value, uh, you know, that uh, the price that a buyer has to pay. Sure. Plus, that is directly charged to the owner, not the developer. So there is less capital they want to bring, the less, you know, they will take out less profit out. Mm. Other thing that it does is because it will create a continuous stream of money coming in, you know, city can better predict and plan how much money is coming in and they can use that, uh, you know, constructively to build the kind of amenities and infrastructure that we need uh, in the city. So there are a lot of advantages through that. Mm -hmm. There are some concerns where people have is uh, traditional land value tax will not work because it favors high-rise buildings over uh, low-rise. And you know we can make some tweaks, um, you know, to that uh, based on the size of the land, how close it is to major transportation hubs, um, you know, what's the relative density in the area. You know, you don't want to put say, you know what, um, we're going to blanketly apply this to every single place. There are no infrastructure there, but force them to build, you know, uh, density. So you have to take into all these, you know, you know, these factors in, and come up with a modern version of land value tax. And uh, you know that that can reflect the need of the city today, and okay. that is one of the reasons where uh, you know that was not part of our platform okay. in the beginning, 
you know, and I'm talking to a lot of people, uh, you know, about the authority of what city can do and what would be the right model. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, when I have more, I'll definitely share the idea with you. Yeah, no, I look forward to that. And it, and it seems like a lot of these issues are the more people I talk to, it's like, oh, we have to look into the legalities of what we can do and where mm-hmm. we need provincial permissions. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of it seems to be unclear. Like yeah. it's not, I mm-hmm. guess it's not yeah. set in stone or. Mm-hmm. Like I said, uh, for a lot of the things that we are going to put out on, in our platform, mm-hmm. these are going to be things we can do on day one. Guaranteed. On, yeah. Okay. Yeah. These are, you know, we have already checked. We have the legal authority at municipal level to do those things. <laughs> Uh, you know, we're not going to promise something uh, where we have to go to another level of government and ask for permissions because mm-hmm. people in Vancouver simply cannot wait anymore. Yeah, and that is the reason we are stepping up. You know, we have uh, most of us have uh, busy careers. We are taking a break, and I cannot afford to be a career politician because um, you know I'll be honest. If I do get elected, you know, I'm lucky enough that I make that kind of salary. But I do get elected. That is, I'm looking at probably 40 to 60 percent lower salary as a counselor than sure. I will be making um, just doing my regular job. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, to, to go back to uh, the land value tax and land value capture, mm-hmm. uh, I just want to bring up one more point. We had uh, Christine Boyle in here mm-hmm. from One City. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first time I ever heard of land value tax or capture was your article. Mm-hmm. And then obviously One City has made it part of its platform. Uh, when I asked Christine to explain it to me, she did so uh, very clearly. And again, tailored to me, someone who doesn't know Mm -hmm. too much about this stuff. Uh, She also admitted that there would be uh, provincial permissions and and certain relationships there that for this to happen. Uh, And she fully admitted that this was something that they would advocate. They're only running two Mm -hmm. city council candidates, Mm -hmm. of course. So I want to ask you, what do you think of their plan? I think, you know, you nailed it. And she's very clear about that is, uh, you know, the biggest thing and the biggest, uh, you know, if people of Vancouver can wait for a solution to be implemented, mm-hmm. you know, and there is no guarantee if that will ever be approved at provincial level, then you go and, you know, you, you can vote for them. You know, they're good people. Uh, you know, what, what I will advocate for is we have a platform that we can implement on day one. Mm-hmm. And that's something that we made up our priority and we are very clear about that. Cool. And uh, yeah, so you know, it's it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people who you know, even from BC Assessment, they are very good friends. We have they bounced uh, those ideas, you know, off me. What do you think about that? And I always come back to, you know, I agree in principle, but you, you know, can you implement it without uh, you know getting permissions from right. another government? Because uh, you know, given the way things are, you know. If I'm a general voter, I have to ask myself, will the NDP bring in another tax after all the taxes they have brought in already? And they've been, you know, media has been against them. There are sure. a lot of people who are, uh, you know, trying to portray all that as negative. You mm-hmm. have uh, school tax that, that came in. You have speculation tax that is coming to you know, coming in very soon. Mm-hmm. I don't think they, you know, who knows? Yeah. My, my. Uh, feeling is they will not touch another tax anytime soon. Hmm. So yes, it sounds a good idea. Practical, in my opinion, it's not. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that pragmatic answer. And again, um, we both agree, and uh, that I and I want to reiterate this: that Christine has fully said that there are things that need mm-hmm. to be done for this 
to yeah. be enacted, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, go and, ahead. Yeah. yeah, and um, you know, and I appreciate that. You know, she was very clear on that. And I know there are other parties as well who are, uh, you know, although there are ideas that I fully support, mm-hmm. uh, but there are things that are, that would require uh, provincial change. And I think people of Vancouver uh, need to pay attention to uh, and ask this question when people say, "I'm going to do this," ask them, "Can you do it?" on day one when can you actually start doing this mm-hmm. and if the answer is well we don't know we need to check with the provincial government then it's up to you to decide are you willing to wait is this housing crisis uh, can can wait or will you be able to maybe you know stay here for another six months mm. you know or a year whatever the timeline is you take that into consideration and 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 then uh, decide who are you going to vote for yeah, fair enough. Um, one thing that I have come under criticism for on Twitter is I have not talked about Airbnb that much. Uh, it's come under Airbnb itself has come under considerable criticism for taking supply out of the market. So I want to discuss this idea with you guys. This is something that you also discuss quite a bit. We've seen illegal Airbnbs, uh, lax enforcement of short term rental rules in this city. But I'm just curious, how big is this? Like, what is the measurable net effect of Airbnb on Vancouver's housing market? And what are you proposing should be done? So uh, before that, uh, the problem with a company which keeps their business secrets uh, very close (laughs) to heart, it's really hard to exactly pinpoint uh, a number. Okay. Uh, You know, we've done, you know, as you know, I'll actually, this would be a good time to introduce one of my fellow candidates, Rohana Rezal. Um, you know, like myself, he's, uh, you know, he works in tech industry and he's uh, used programming, you know, modern tools mm-hmm. uh, to, un- to uncover some of these things. And the number comes, uh, you know, somewhere between, you know, 3,000 to 5,000 units. And what we're talking about is these are units uh, which... In the, in the city right now, 3,000 to 5,000 units. Right now. Okay. These are units which are currently under the definition of uh, City of Vancouver Airbnb or short-term uh, rental bylaws are illegal, mm-hmm. and these are on just one website. And um, so, w- another thing that he did was uh, uh, he created another you know, program which will go on Airbnb. It will you know go scan the website, come up with the with the licenses or properties which are violating uh, these laws, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you, you know, that makes it very easy for city to figure out where the problem is. And, uh, you know, then they go out and tell, talk to the people and make sure they have got the li- right license or they stop doing what they're doing and put those properties back into, um, you know, long-term rental supply. Right. And the city refused to do it. And these are the things that really bother us, that if these are, you know, if somebody's offering you to When you help, say the city refused to do it, so Rohana offered to give this for free. Yeah, Rohana offered to uh, give it for free. And again, to the best of my knowledge, the city said we will not use it. Wow. These are, you know, they are, we're not even asking, you know, for, for money. Yeah. We are offering a solution voluntarily for free because we care about our city. Mm-hmm. And the city says, nope, you know, we're not going to take it. Hmm. Wow, interesting. Okay, um, so so what are you proposing should be done? You're adding this technology. Would you keep the 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 laws and the rules the same and mm-hmm. just maybe enforce them or, or try to get better enforcement, mm-hmm. or would you even change um, the penalties? So there are two, two sides of these. Is uh, we have to look at what what agreement that the Airbnb has with the city. From all indications, are it's 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 very very 
uh, one-sided in favor of of Airbnb. Mm-hmm. They are not required to do any enforcement. They, there is no uh, consequences if they are, they are not enforcing that. It right. all falls on down to the city of Vancouver. So we'll have to go and look at that first and see if there is a way out and can we bring in better uh, better bylaws. Mm-hmm. Now, my personal opinion is that you need to look at what Airbnb was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be a way for bread and breakfast provider to connect with clients. Right. You know, uh, and bread and breakfast are not new things. They, mm-hmm. People have been running them for well, almost a century now. Yeah. And city of Vancouver had the bylaws to, uh, to define how they are, uh, can be implemented or how they can be used. And so we didn't know, it was one of those cases where we did not need to reinvent the wheel we just need to make sure that if you are going to operate, these are our existing bylaws. We just need to modernize them and make sure uh, that you know we we bring the technology factor back into it. Okay. But city went out and created a new deal, and they it's a new business class of licenses, you know. And I always joke about it is you know they say oh it's a shared economy. This is you know twenty uh, first century. And you know, I was like, you know, I work in tech industry. You know, what if uh, somebody comes in tomorrow and says, you know what, we're going to have an heirs, you know, chicken coop or heirs, you know, slaughterhouse, you know, and that becomes cool. And would you like to have uh, somebody, you know, you know, running some of those businesses right next to you in the middle of a, you know, of a housing, uh, sure. you know, zone? Yeah. <laughs> so we have to look at it, you know, just because something is. Uh, you're modern and new and cool yeah. does not mean that they can just go around and not follow the the bylaws of the city sure. or, or or we you know they can we can compromise the safety of the residents uh, who live in the neighborhood sure <coughs> one more question about housing before we move on to a couple other topics um, I want to talk about the empty homes tax there are a few candidates that are talking about increasing this tax perhaps tripling this tax where, do you, where does Pro Vancouver stand on the empty homes tax? So before I talk about that, um, just a little bit on the enforcement thing. Um, sure. So there's a little uh, unknown thing uh, to the public that we discovered by accident. Are we talking about the enforcement of the empty homes anything, tax? Anything, okay. actually. It, oh, anything. It, okay. Yes. So sure. when we're talking about a bylaw infraction, the mm-hmm. city actually does not have the ability to enforce it through the fine. This is actually why the city has like over $8 million a year in parking fines that are not paid. So I don't have to pay those? No. Oh, literally, they can't do anything <laughs> until they tow your vehicle and hold your ransom. Oh, okay, yeah, right. They can do that exactly. <laughs> but what we're going to push the province to give us the ability to—it's critical to the enforcement part—is to move towards a tax lien finable system, which means that if we give you a fine, we can put that as a tax lien on your property. Mm. So if you don't pay in two years, we take you to court and we take your property. That'll get your attention real fast. Okay. So this is why we need to talk about that a little bit before we talk about EHT. Okay. Because when we're looking at empty homes tax, it's an honor system. We already know there's people not necessarily being very honorable about how they're reporting this. Mm -hmm. And then if there's an infraction, what happens? Right? Same thing with Airbnb. So that has to come into play. For the empty homes tax, let's us first be very clear. Our target is not the old homeowner who has been working here for 40 years, who's retired, who's now become a snowbird. That Mm -hmm. is not our target. So what we looked at was having a more progressive system. And we've been tinkering with some ideas. Um, We're looking at increasing the empty homes tax, but making it graduated. So that, you know, if you're say 500 and below, there's a a set rate. You go to like 500 to 1.5 million, it's a different rate. And it's gonna be scaled. Mm -hmm. So that the more you have in terms of the property value, the more the empty homes tax, because here's the problem. 
when you have money, that small fine is not a hindrance. Sure. You look at cost of doing business, Yeah. right? Especially really high up. So what we have to do is make this painful. We have to make it so that people get the message that land banking, this lack of use, especially in a housing crisis, mm -hmm. is not acceptable. Now, what we can also do is, and I've said this before, taxation's great, but you have to be really careful. It has to have a laser focus. Mm -hmm. You can't just throw a net out there and hope that you're not gonna get bycatch. Right. You have to have a corrective mechanism in there that says, we know exactly what our target is. Our target is, like I said, not the old homeowner. So what we're gonna look at is we're gonna have a credit system that will credit you back the tax depending on how long you've lived here in that residence as your prime residence. Mm -hmm. Now, I also get it, some people swap homes, but we can still track how long you've actually lived here with our principal residence and we can apply a credit to that effect. So, okay. you know, if you've been here for 40 years and you've worked hard, you've paid your taxes, you've earned the right, you've helped the community out through all your consumption taxes, all those things that people are not recognizing, mm -hmm. but it's happened, yeah, right? Of course. So you built the strength of your community. You built the characteristic of your community. You've earned the right to go traveling as a snowbird if you want. Mm -hmm. You're not our problem. Our problem is those empty homes, right. the empty homes that may be boarded up or, and we discovered this while door knocking, there's a lot of homes that are empty and they have caretakers and they're terrified to see us. Yeah. They don't want to tell us that, oh, the homeowner is not actually here. And yeah. you can see it in the fear when they open the doors, huh. right? So that is what our problem is. Okay. That's what we have to discourage. Interesting. So what, so what does happen with the empty homes tax? Say day one, you guys are in power. What happens to it then? Well, like I said, we're still tweaking the actual scale, okay. but um, we're not really opposed to going beyond what even Vision Vancouver is saying at 4%. Yeah. Because like, you know, 3 to 4%, that's still nothing. It's right. still not painful enough, especially when your property has appreciated 10 to 30% per mm -hmm. year, depending on where you are. What's 3 to 4%? Yeah. So it sounds like to me, like in principle, you are in favor of the idea of the tax, but you actually, but you think right now it has no teeth to it and you want to add Bingo. teeth. Bingo. Yeah. I, I think there are two things. Right now, uh, it has a lot of bycatch and the sure. other part of it, it does not have enough, uh, you know, teeth to it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I know it is another uh, issue that I'm going to talk about, which is more provincial. Uh, you know, uh, when, when that tax came in, the uh, foreign buyer's tax, you know, and I support that idea, but if you look at it, what, if you believe that it is going to stop people uh, from buying because it hurts them, what are they going to do? Instead of buying, let's say, if they were buying a million-dollar property before and, and the tech, uh, techs hurt them, yeah, they'd go, the go down the ladder. And yeah. that's what we have seen a lot. Mm. After this, um, this these uh, the impact of that was lower-end market started going up because some of that capital moved from higher-end to the lower-end. Mm. So, again... These are the things that you have to, uh, you know, look at. So, and a lot of people people are saying, oh, we have to look at it and increase the tax, um, you know, that particular one, even more on the higher side. And then we need to look at, you know, saying, oh, maybe it's time we look at the lower end of the market for that particular tax and mm -hmm. increase that. So you have to be very, very clear on what the impact of the, of, of a tax is. Yeah. That's why I'm very, very careful. And you know, I, you know, and so is David and our team. When we say these things, we need to have a very, very clear, laser-focused plan 
And again, it seems like I'm repeating myself. Please do. That's we fine. have to be able to implement that on day one. And I'm proud to say we are the only one who actually has that. So let's talk about that. Because one thing I noticed, and we're moving away from housing now, mm -hmm. but one thing I noticed in your transportation mm -hmm. uh, plan, or mm -hmm. at least what you have of it right now on your website, mm -hmm. um, you've proposed a variety of flat fares and transit discount policies mm -hmm. for public transportation in this city. But can you do this without permissions from mm -hmm. the provincial government or mm -hmm. without permissions from yeah. Translate? So and if you look at, if you read it on our website, it does say that it is a regional plan. Okay. It is very clear in that, that, you know, we believe, you know, we this is what we would like to do. I've already talked to a lot of people who are running in other municipalities to say, what do you think about this idea? And for your listeners, what those ideas are is, you know, I have a family. Um, you know, I don't live in downtown anymore. And you have to look at is once you're in that situation, uh, you know, it's not always practical depending on how far you are from the SkyTrain or the bus, especially in a city where it rains a lot, uh, to not own a car. Mm. So once you buy a car, then you are looking at, uh, you know, should I take my car or should I take transit? And you're looking at you know, a lot of factors. Among them is cost, mm. you know. If I'm going maybe uh, four kilometers uh, to buy you know, uh, some groceries with my family, I'm not going to take a bus because it costs me, it's going to take me more time. Mm -hmm. It's going to be inconvenient on the way back. It is going to cost me more money than if I take my personal car. So our focus in that is we need to look at policies which accept that people may own a car, but how can we make them leave that car behind, right. leave them at home? So to that, uh, you know, some of the you know, comments and policy, and that's been one of my big pet peeves is the when we start our single family zones or single uh, single fare zones, mm -hmm. you would assume that you would start that uh, during the peak time, yeah, because you want to make sure during peak time most people are leaving their cars behind and getting on transit. Mm -hmm. But except that what we do is we started. After that, when everybody has driven driven their car back home, there is no, you know fewer less traffic on the road. We say, oh, now we're going to make it one zone. Right. So one of the first things that we plan to do, and again, it has to come from with the help of other municipalities, and that's why the plan is to move to a single zone, which will help people, um, you know, who who don't live in Vancouver, mm -hmm. uh, benefit that. And that's why we think the other municipalities will agree on this. Mm -hmm. Is to move to a, a single zone fare at the beginning of the day, have it go till 10 a.m. Mm -hmm. and start it at 4 in the evening. Interesting. And that way, uh, it will be cheaper for people to travel, uh, you know, around peak times, and they will be encouraged um, to leave their car behind. Yeah. You know, there are other policies which are more towards family, where uh, you know we want to bring back a family pass. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to um, you know make sure. You know there are world-class cities. Uh, London being an example of that, where you they can you cannot spend more than a certain amount uh, on transit per day. It mm -hmm. just caps it off, no matter how much you're using. We want to bring that you know, in, and there are other uh, you know a lot of other policies uh, that are in there um, that that you know I think we can. But again, we have we have been very clear on those. These are policies that we will require help from other municipalities. It's open. We are talking to them. And we are getting a lot of feedback. There okay. are some, uh, you know, suggestions that we missed um, that people have said, you know, have why, why have you not included these things sure. um, that we are, you know, also considering. But it comes down to to one simple thing: 
the best way to address congestion is make people incentivize people to leave their cars behind yeah. not to fight in the, the fight that why do you have a car because we live in a in a city where people may need a car for a variety of reasons mm-hmm. um, so yeah that's uh, that's that policy in a nutshell cool so we we just have a, a little more time left uh, and I, I have a lot of questions that unfortunately I was not able to get to but one thing I do want to ask because I do think it's interesting you've talked about improving garbage and recycling pickup can yeah. you explain to me what what you're going to do there very very briefly because i have a few questions about the sure. campaign as well okay so very quickly the thing is that just like transportation everything is based on this negative reinforcement mm-hmm. right and so we know that we can't create more garbage so what they're doing is they're making it miserable yeah they, you know garbage pickups once every two weeks organics is once a week the challenge with that is like you know i got a baby at home I get diapers. I'm sorry, but if you keep diapers for two weeks, they get really smelly, okay? <laughs> and if you put it in the lane, then what happens is you get the, you know, people, no fixed address. They come in. They rip apart everything. They make a mess. And then I got to clean it up, yeah. right? So what we'd like to see is this is sort of an accounting thing. Okay. You want to reduce the garbage, but you don't want to make it painful on people. So what you do is you can take a container half as big, but pick it up twice as often, right? And this is especially okay. important with organics. Because this is where the science degree comes in, okay? Um, Fruit flies take three to four days to go from egg to adult that's now fertile and will create the next generation of fruit flies, Mm. right? So if you keep your organics in that one container for a full week, you've now created two generations of fruit flies, which now embeds itself. And we're getting more fruit flies coming into homes. We're getting them in the alleys and all this type of stuff. So if we actually were to cut the container in half and pick it up twice a week instead of once a week, we could actually interrupt a life cycle. And the more we interrupt that, the less the problems, yeah. the less the smelly, moldy, you know, organics is there. And I think we need to think more towards that. Now, in terms of cost, it will cost a little bit more, but not a lot because the garbage truck or the organics truck only fills half as quick. So it means that it doesn't have to take off to the transfer station as quickly. Oh, you save those trips. Yeah. So what's okay. happening is you're going to trade a little bit for picking up more yeah. with the savings from not going to the transfer station as much. Because honestly, you're still paying per hour for that. Yeah. And if they're not doing any work, well, that's sort of a waste of time. Interesting. All right. Well, I, I love that you guys included that. I have, I have not heard anyone talk about garbage pickup or recycling. Yeah. That's that's really cool. Yeah. I think it, it's important that uh, we know housing is a big issue. That's something that uh, you know brought us together, and uh, we have a lot of ideas around that. Mm-hmm. But as a parent, you have to look at uh, overall livability. You mm-hmm. know, for me, um, you know, having you know, safe parks, uh, having access to uh, community centers, mm-hmm. that is a big thing. You know, I work in tech industry, so of course, uh, you know, the, when I talk to people there, you know, the CEOs or peer managers, I was trying to hire. You know some of the problems that they bring up around, uh, you know, not being able to have enough staff. Um, our universities not, in their, um, you know, opinion, not producing the right kind of people they need at this time. Mm. You know, these things all you know always come up, and uh, and and we you know we have a plan for that. It's just that, you know, it almost have to be when you're on a campaign, you cannot talk about everything. No, you know, and uh, so it's. It seems like, um, you know, it's, it's all about housing, but it's not. We have given a thought to a lot of things 
Um, they have a lot of ideas. And when we are doing our, uh, you know, going to these events, and some of the time people come up and they say, you know, yeah, yeah, I have a house. And I'm not worried about that. Uh, <laughs> I, what I want to know is about these things. Yeah. And yeah, you know, and we give them their the answer that they, they or to their questions. And sometimes we do tell them, you know, honestly, we have not thought about it uh, right now. What do you think is the right way? Yeah. And that's refreshing. That's surprising to them because at the end of the day. You know, the way I think it is, uh, you know, four, four years ago, I was sitting on the other side uh, in these debates. I was mm-hmm. looking at these people, hoping that they will come and, you know, have good ideas and fix them. And there was a lot of talk and no action. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm running. So when this platform is re-released, mm-hmm. are we going to see things like this uh, this garbage policy and the recycling pickup? Are we going to see things... Uh, I, You've also talked about protecting community spaces. Are we going to see sort of a wide breadth of issues mm-hmm. in this re-release yeah. platform? Yeah, so we are going to release uh, it in chunks. Uh, so for first one, because the, it is the most important one, is going to be about housing. Sure. And then followed by by other ones, uh, depending on uh, how many policies we decide that we can uh, talk about in a very short time. Yeah. Uh, you know, we'll we'll break it down. So cool. it could be uh, you know two releases. Maybe uh, it will be three releases. Depends on uh, you know when we uh, as we go along and we talk to people and they define what they want to know. Uh, if the more people want to know about something, then we will you know make it as our large announcement as part of our platform. But if there are fewer people, then we're not going to you know bombard you with extra right. information. Um, and you know, which makes it really harder for you to find the information that you need. Because one thing in this busy city where everybody is trying to work really hard to make and meet uh, is time, mm-hmm. um, and we want to make sure we respect that. Sure. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, I look forward to the the platforms as they are released and and whatever does end up being released. Um, I want to talk about the campaign. Mm-hmm. Again, we sort of talked about this at the start of the show. You know, if, if COPE is retro classic, you guys are like the viral video because mm-hmm. p- online, specifically on Twitter, there's a lot of passionate people that are following you, that are boosting you and supporting you. Um, but I think we all recognize, all three of us in this room recognize that what happens on the Internet necess- isn't necessarily what's happening outside or mm-hmm. isn't necessarily real life. I mean, there are real people, absolutely. Um, but it's not reflecting the same trend of what's happening. So my question is, with that passionate following online, how do you grow that into something that's more tangible and will show up to vote mm-hmm. on October 20th? Yeah. Uh, part of that is uh, we are doing door knocking. Mm-hmm. We are going to a lot of community events, uh, you know, like in some cases, uh, three to four events a day. Wow. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to say that, uh, you know, like describe... Uh, every single day, I get up at six in the morning because I have to go to have a coffee with somebody who mm-hmm. wants to share his or her ideas about you know what they think uh, we missed or they want some clarification. Mm-hmm. And on most days, I'm going back home on a good day at, at eleven. Wow! Um, and that that has been my day for uh, you know for a month almost now, mm-hmm. and I'm not working. I actually have to um, you know stop working to yeah. make sure I get to. Uh, engage with people and connect to people of Vancouver where they are, mm-hmm. and so 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 they are doing all of that. And then uh, in terms of uh, being online, I would not discount that out, but we need to think of it in a different way. You know, at uh, a company that I work for, it's called Change.org. 
you know, that, that showed us how we can utilize modern tools and technology to make change accessible. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm, I've been asking a lot of our followers. If you like what we have to say, then it, you know, the easiest thing that you can do, which uh, is going to take you five minutes, is uh, you know, go to your address book. Look at your friends who you think are, you know, should know about us and you know, send them a link to our uh, website mm-hmm. or email them. Or if you're on, on Twitter or Facebook and you like something that we're uh, saying, you know, don't, don't keep it to yourself. You know, don't be afraid to press that shared button <laughs> and, uh, and, and share it to more, 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 more of the people. And that uh, power of amplification is something that has changed. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, being somebody who is involved in technology, who practically grew up in that world, you know, I I I have to you know re-emphasize: don't underestimate the power of uh, amplifying your message. Mm-hmm. You know, the more you help us reach more people, uh, the better chance that you have, uh, you know, of us, us getting elected. Okay. Are you, are you guys still going to be as prolific online as, as you have been? I think uh, you guys post uh, are yeah. quite interactive and, qu- mm-hmm. and quite participatory in mm-hmm. different yeah. threads. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to be uh, you know, uh, honest on that is uh, when uh, the, the time that we are doing, you know, we're trying to reach uh, as many people where they are. Mm-hmm. We cannot be on our phone all of the course, time. Of course, yeah. Right? Uh, yeah, so that is understandable. You know, you go through a campaign period where you have to uh, do these things. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so if you have a question for us or you wanted to, you know, get something out of us immediately, that is the reason, and we apologize for that. There are a lot of other Vancouver rights <laughs> out there that, you know, we need to reach them out on their door. Of course. And But going forward, and, uh, you know, David can add a bit more to it. Sure. Is, one of the key principle is, uh, you know, everybody who gets elected, you know, from Pro Vancouver, we are going to meet you where you are. Yeah. Which means we are going to meet you in your neighborhood. If you are online, we're going to meet you there, and 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 that has been, uh, you know, our goal, because that's how we met, and that's how we created Pro Vancouver. Mm-hmm. David, you wanted to add to that? Yeah. Or? So, I, you know, we have, we have like four minutes left. Okay. So, so I'll be really yeah. quick. So <laughs> I know a lot of people are looking at us, going, "What's the metrics? How many people have you got following?" Yeah. It's difficult for us to quantify, but there's a health check, mm-hmm. and it's brilliant because when we go door knocking and someone's heard about us, that's fantastic because we don't even know who they are, mm. right? Yeah. We've, we've had people, I've gone to events where they come up and they're like, oh, you're the guy I'm going to vote for. Oh, that's great. I have no idea who you are. So that's a positive <laughs> health check. Yeah. Even more positive is after we do the events, we get invited back for special breakfast. Mm. So that's showing that we are getting momentum, we are resonating, and it is happening. Yeah. We have a ton of people that have vouched their support to us but they're not coming out to events because just don't have the capacity. Sure. Yeah. At the end of the day, they're working to death. Housing's costing a bunch, right? We get that. Yeah. Some people in, in the, on the online community have, have claimed that they uh, uh, advocated for you to be on the UBC Solder School uh, housing panel. Is that true? That, yes. they, that they Twittered you in? Yes. Really? Well, it was part of it. That's what got the attention. That's why they put certain metrics on the table. It said, okay, if you don't pass this, you're not in. Yeah. And we surpassed it. Oh, amazing. Right. Yes. The power of the internet. Yes. Um, 
tell me about your slate. And again, we only have a few minutes left, but okay. I want to hear about the rest of your slate. Not so just we have Lisa Christensen, who is a management specialist that deals with a lot of sort of the infrastructure within. Mm-hmm. Um, she w- wants to run with us because I think she's uh, sort of unhappy about how the admin is working within you know, City Hall. Mm-hmm. We got Breton Krellen, who's a young guy. You know, we're thrilled to have his energy. He's also a builder. He brings to us the ideas of whether or not we can do something, especially when it comes to housing. We got Rohana Rizal and we got Raza Mirza. Obviously, they're our technology experts, but also they get a passion for housing. That's critically important to us. Mm-hmm. When we look further down the list, we've got Tiffany Kindred, who's our school board trustee. Um, she comes from marginalized family. This was actually one of the reasons why, and, and I know you asked this question before, what was our application cost? Mm-hmm. Big zero. Anybody <laughs> could join us, right? But what we were looking for is we wanted to open the door so that somebody had good ideas, who had integrity, could actually join us, but cool. wouldn't be impacted by the cost. Yeah. So she's running for us. And the beautiful thing about that is she knows what's happening on the marginal side of schools, inner city schools. So if she can advocate there, she can help higher up. But if you've never seen what's going on in inner city school, you have no clue how to advocate for what those schools need. Hmm. On the parks board side, we've got uh, uh, Greg Edgelow, who's a former Olympian. He's also First Nation status, so he gets a lot, and it's great having, you know, sort of the support of the First Nations behind what he's trying to do. So that's really awesome. And we have Rick Hurlbutt, who is part of the LGBTQ community and really, really knowledgeable about the park stuff. I mean, I had a question that someone asked me. I'm like, Okay, that's a little bit outside of my realm, so ask Rick, and he answered it beautifully. Yeah. Right? So we have a comprehensive team. We have the genders. We have all the cultures. We have everything looked after, and so we are a comprehensive team that is bringing solutions day one to the people of Vancouver. And, and uh, I would like to add uh, one more thing. Um, I was recently meeting um, another fellow candidate who is running for, um, for, for City of Surrey, and he was like, you know, like, well, I look at your, your, the people you're running, they represent uh, Vancouver. You know, they have the gender equity. They have the, you know, the, the equity in terms of social orientation. You have mm-hmm. the people who are who represent First First Nations. She must have a policy in there. And I said, no, that's not on our platform. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, that's the way was, it happened. It, that thing is, when you are representing uh, people of Vancouver, mm-hmm. what you will eventually see is the mix of people who live in Vancouver. Yeah. You know, if you do not put barrier uh, of entry, yeah, and and you're welcome to uh, and open to everybody, mm-hmm. then naturally you don't have to have those policies. Yeah, and that is one of the reasons. If you look at some of the other parties, I'll just say that, uh, you know, you you know they they have certain type of diversity, but is it representative of the people of Vancouver? You know, does it mm-hmm. actually match our population statistics? No, because uh, no, they have put a high barrier of who can enter that club. Right. Yeah. Interesting point. Uh, two more things before we leave off. Uh, the first is give me your elevator pitch. Why should people vote for pro Vancouver? Why should people vote for a new political party with new political faces? Uh, for me is, uh, you know, a lot of when I go to and uh, you know a lot of the events and people are saying, "Oh, I'm this great person. I've done all these things in my life, and I want to give back to the community," you know. And for me, it's like, no. The only reason I'm doing this is I have kids. Mm-hmm. My daughter is three year old. The other daughter is only six months. And if we do not change what's going on in our city, they will not have a city to live in. Mm-hmm. 
and you can now go in and decide if you're going to you know vote for somebody who's doing it just because they feel like you know they, it's time to give back to the community or somebody who's you know doing it because that they, they they want to do it because that's uh, the only way their kids will have future you know mm-hmm. my, my young older daughter who's only uh, 3 we've already lived in uh, five different homes you know? wow okay and hmm. i in just in terms of uh, salary i am considered to be you know top 5% yeah that is how messed up our our, our housing system has become and mm-hmm. then you look at it uh, our schools they're struggling to find teachers and if we cannot fix those things i am not giving my kids a better future if they cannot give them good education if i cannot give them uh, you know the childhood and the neighbors they need you know then i i fail as a father mm-hmm. and i don't want, do not want to do it anymore and that's why i'm running well that's i think a very personal note to sort of end this um, great conversation if people want to get in touch with you if they want to get involved with pro vancouver where should they go what should they do ProVancouver.ca is our website. If you look on uh, Instagram, uh, I believe it's ProVancouverHQ. And also on Twitter, it's ProVancouverHQ as well. All right. Well, gentlemen, I want to commend you on the monumental task that lays ahead. Uh, you certainly have your work cut out for you, but I appreciated the the candid, genuine conversation that we had today. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedules to be here with me. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Raza Mirza and David Chen of Pro Vancouver. And in an election where you cannot take anything for granted, they are hoping to sit in Vancouver City Hall after October 20th. And I'm Mo Amir telling you that in a city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. Peace.